In the eyes of their neighbors, the Jensens were an example of an ideal marriage. The couple spent a great deal of time together and always seemed to be laughing and having a good time. On top of being a perfect couple, they seemed like a perfect family too after having two beautiful children together. During their 14-year marriage, their relationship would take an unexpected turn that would end in tragedy. Welcome to the Beyond Evil podcast, where we discuss and dissect the most mysterious, terrifying, and mind-bending cases from all over the world. Before we begin, we would like to send our sincere condolences to the loved ones of Julie Jensen, who fell victim to the abominable acts described in this case. Mark Jensen met Julie Griffin in a Sears department store in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in 1981. They both happened to work at the same men's department store. Mark sold suits while Julie sold just about everything else. They attended the same local college, the University of Wisconsin Parkside in Kenosha. They formed a romantic relationship soon after they met. Julie was studying nursing in college. To finish her degree, she had to transfer to the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. For the sake of staying with Julie, Mark also transferred to the same university. The summer after they transferred, Mark had an idea to start his own business as a house painter. He called the company University Student Painters. Julie worked with him, and they painted many houses together. Mark and Julie were married in 1984. During her final semester of college, Julie suffered a severe case of depression. She ended up dropping out of nursing school and never finishing her degree. Julie's brother Paul said, She did a great job with all the bookwork and everything. She had difficulty because she got very close to her patients, and emotionally, she couldn't take it. Mark Jensen, on the other hand, had completed his college degree. Right after graduation, he took a job as a stockbroker in Lake Forest, Illinois. Mark led a highly successful career. With his job, the couple did have to move a few times. Eventually, they were able to settle in a beautiful suburban home on Tony Lakeshore Drive in Pleasanton Prairie, Wisconsin. In 1991, Mark and Julie had their first child together, David. Soon after the birth of their son, Mark found out that Julie had had an affair with a co-worker named Perry Tarika back in 1991 that occurred over one weekend. This deeply damaged their marriage. With their marriage seemingly on the rocks, Julie felt it best to file for divorce. However, they decided to try marriage counseling instead, which seemed to help, and the couple stayed together. Four years later, Mark and Julie had another son named Douglas. Neighbors found the Jensens to be a charming family. The couple seemed to have a strong and loving bond since they were frequently seen spending time together outside, happily working on various projects. One of their neighbors, Margaret White, said that she always saw the couple laughing and having fun. As a stockbroker, Mark had to attend many meetings and work-related events. Spouses were always invited to these gatherings, and initially, Julie happily attended every one. She became increasingly unsociable over a period of time, however, and at one point stopped attending Mark's work-related functions altogether. Julie used the excuse of her children, saying that she could not bear to have her children be watched by anyone but her. In 1998, Mark took a job in Racine, about 30 minutes away from home. This new job was an exciting opportunity for him because it was his first management position. 
Mark Jensen had become the office manager for a new office established by Stifle Nicholas, a financial firm based in St. Louis. To help Mark celebrate his new job, Julie went with him to pick out new furniture for his office. Yet she never visited the office nor took any time to meet any of Mark's office staff. According to Mark, Julie said she didn't know them and didn't want to know them. As fall rolled around, Mark began telling his friends that Julie was suffering from severe depression. Julie had been seeing a doctor about her mental health conditions and was prescribed multiple medications to help her work through it. On the morning of December 3, 1998, Mark found his wife's lifeless body lying on their bed. Mark and Julie's children were still very young at the time. David was eight years old, Douglas only three. There were no signs of injury to Julie's body, so after the initial investigation of the Jensen's home, the police believed Julie's death to be a case of suicide. District Attorney Bob Jamboy was called by investigators and asked to come over to the Jensen's home during the investigation. He said, they told me, well, the medical examiner is saying it's probably natural causes, but we have some questions, so you might want to come out here. Though it did appear as if Julie had committed suicide, the DA wasn't sure. Julie's face had an odd position when her body was found, which was one of the questions that lingered in the investigators' minds. Friends and family were soon informed of Julie's death. Her four brothers, Paul, Patrick, Mike, and Larry Griffin, were in shock when they received the news. A few family members came to the house, which included Julie's brother Paul and Mark's father, Dan Jensen. Julie's brother Patrick refused to believe that his sister would take her own life, saying that she had never mentioned having any suicidal thoughts. As Paul recalled, the police struggled to get any coherent answers out of Mark to explain what had happened to Julie. Mark said Julie told him that she was taking a new prescribed medication and he mentioned a drug interaction. Dan described Mark as being an emotional basket case while being questioned by investigators. He was in tears, he could hardly stand up, he didn't know what to say, or he didn't know how to talk. When the first autopsy report came, there was no evidence to show that Julie had been murdered. It turned out Julie's family had a history of depression along with other issues. Her mother and brother Patrick both struggled with depression. Julie's mother was also an alcoholic through most of her life. Julie's mother originally had six children. The youngest of the boys was Richie. One day, in a fit of anger, Julie's mother kicked Richie directly in the stomach, and he died a few hours later. Julie's mother blamed her sons for Richie's death, saying that they accidentally killed him while roughhousing together in the backyard. It would be years later before Julie's brothers realized that their mother had actually been the one to kill their little brother. To save herself, the mother made them believe that it was their fault. Julie's mother never really overcame alcohol abuse. The night before Mark and Julie's wedding, her mother suddenly passed out during the wedding rehearsal. They discovered that Julie's mother was suffering from alcohol withdrawal. In her condition, her mother was unable to attend the wedding. Florence Jensen, Mark's mother, said that it deeply hurt Julie. She told me that her mother had ruined everything that was important to her in her life. And if she had a wedding, her mother was going to ruin that too. And of course, she did. None of the Jensens, not even Mark, knew that Julie's mother was suffering from both depression and alcoholism until the incident occurred. 
Not long after Julie and Mark's wedding, her mother was found dead in a swimming pool after she had decided to go swimming while under the influence of alcohol. Julie confided in Florence about her concerns that one day she may end up like her alcoholic mother. Florence said, As Julie got older, she could feel that she was becoming more like her mother, and I'm sure her episodes of depression were part of that. Julie's brother, Patrick, attempted to try to take his own life at the age of 17 by slitting his wrists in a bathtub. However, he was discovered by family members who were able to save him in time. In the case of Julie's death, Mark Jensen's parents believed that Julie was plotting to make it look like Mark had poisoned her so that she could take everything away from him. But her plot failed, and she just ended up killing herself. With Julie's family and medical history and no evidence to prove otherwise, it looked as though this was a case that would be resolved as a suicide. That is, until Ted and Margaret Woit handed over a piece of evidence to police that would change the course of the investigation. The Woits gave police an envelope they claimed was given to them by Julie on November 21st. She told them to give it to the police if anything would happen to her. It was a letter and a photo of a shopping list. The letter read, I took this picture and am writing this on Saturday, November 21st, 1998 at 7 a.m. This list was in my husband's business daily planner, not meant for me to see. I don't know what it means, but if anything happens to me, he would be my first suspect. Our relationship has deteriorated to the polite superficial. I know he's never forgiven me for the brief affair I had with that creep seven years ago. Mark lives for work and his kids, and he is an avid surfer of the Internet. Anyway, I do not smoke or drink. My mother was an alcoholic, so I limit my drinking to one or two a week. Mark wants me to drink more with him in the evenings. I don't. I would never take my life because of my kids. They are everything to me. End quote. Julie included a list of medications that she took in her letter, which included Tylenol, multivitamins, and an occasional over-the-counter med for colds and prescribed migraine tablets. Julie stated that Mark took her migraine tablets more often than she does. Her letter continued, I pray I'm wrong and nothing happens, but I am suspicious of Mark's suspicious behaviors and fear for my early demise. However, I will not leave David and Douglas. The shopping list was written by Mark, and it included poisons and syringes. The district attorney was now convinced that Mark had murdered his wife, Julie. Now that there was a chance that Julie had been poisoned, the medical examiner was ordered to run more tests on Julie Jensen's body to see if they could find any trace of poison in her system. On top of Julie writing the letter for the police, she had also confided in the Woits about her concerns multiple times. Julie also told an acquaintance of the family, Teresa DeFazio, her son's third-grade teacher. Julie began speaking out about her fears of Mark's intentions around the same time Mark had started telling people about her severe depression. Teresa told the police that one day Julie had blurted out, I think my husband's going to kill me. On top of telling the Woits about her story, Julie further stated that she believed Mark was trying to make her look crazy to their children. The Whites were shocked by Julie's words, though they had noticed a change in the couple's marriage a short time after Mark had started his new management position in 1998. 
Ted Woit said the first sign was when he found Mark was wanting Julie to be more sexually experimental. Ted quoted Julie as saying, Mark wants me to be like those other women, his friends. They go to bars, three in the morning. They go to strip clubs, drinking. I'm not that. I don't want it. Ted said that Mark had also become highly judgmental towards Julie, telling her that she was a bad mother and a bad influence on their kids. Ted's wife, Margaret, said Julie wanted to get a divorce, but she told Margaret that Mark would kill her before allowing that to happen. Julie's brother, Paul, said that Julie had told him she filed for divorce years ago, but Mark had threatened her by saying that he would make sure she never saw their children again if she went through with it. The Whites said that Julie tried to go to the police and expressed her suspicions about her husband, but since she had no proof, the police did nothing. Julie kept the Whites and Teresa informed of any updates regarding her suspicions. Two months after she had first mentioned her concerns with them, she told the Whites and Teresa that she thought Mark was researching poisons on the Internet and had found bizarre notes on his desk. Teresa said Julie started saying things like, I found some notes next to his computer that had lists of drugs and syringes and paraphernalia that I think would be something he would use on me. Teresa suggested that she go to a shelter, but Julie said no. When November rolled around, the Whites noticed that Julie was very sick. Ted told Julie, take the boys, leave. If you need money, I will give you money. But Julie refused. The last time the Whites spoke to Julie was the day before her death. Julie had called Margaret saying that she wasn't feeling well. Margaret said Julie sounded shaky on the phone, almost like she was drunk. Margaret tried to convince Julie to let her do something to help, but Julie informed her that Mark was taking good care of her and all was well. About 24 hours later, Julie would be found dead, and the Woits would soon deliver their letter to the police. It turned out Mark was having an affair with a married co-worker, Kelly Labonte, whom he met in his new position as office manager. This was a discovery that police made when they checked Mark's computer. According to investigators, it looked as though someone had tried to erase the history on Mark's computer, but some of the files were still intact, such as Mark's emails to Kelly professing his love to her. According to District Attorney Bob Jamboy, the computer was a treasure trove of inculpatory evidence. It really helped to tell the whole story. First of all, it showed us the motive because there were the emails between Mark and Kelly. We didn't know he had a girlfriend on the side. But that wasn't the only evidence found on Mark's computer. The search history revealed that Mark had looked up various poisons, including ethylene glycol, the main ingredient in antifreeze. Though it took more than two years and multiple tests to reveal any trace of ethylene glycol in Julie's system, the medical examiner finally found some in Julie's stomach. Dr. Mainland said that in most cases involving the ingestion of the compound were suicides. However, she believed that this was not the case with Julie. Since Julie had begun showing symptoms the night before she died, Dr. Mainland believed that Julie had been poisoned two days prior to her death. A couple of her friends and neighbors who attended Julie's funeral claimed that Mark showed no signs of mourning for his wife. Instead, he was laughing and carrying on as if they were at a cocktail party. The district attorney accused Mark of murdering Julie by poisoning her with antifreeze in order to be with his mistress, Kelly. 
He also believed that Mark had suffocated her since Julie's face was found in such an odd position when the body was found. Not long after Julie's passing, Kelly moved in with Mark and his two sons. With all the evidence investigators had collected on Mark Jensen, the district attorney believed that he could finally take him to trial for murdering his wife, Julie. It was a significant struggle to get Julie's letter entered in as evidence, however. Mark's legal defense argued that Julie's letter was fraudulent and could not be allowed as evidence since it violated the Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which states that evidence which cannot be cross-examined cannot be submitted in court. In 2002, it appeared as though Mark's legal defense had won over the case of Julie's letter because it was ruled inadmissible. However, Julie's four brothers were determined that her letter be used as evidence. Her brother Paul stated, We should fight to get the letter admitted because that was Julie's voice. The district attorney and Julie's brothers fought hard to have her letter admitted for years. It took five years, but the DA was able to appeal to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, who said that Julie's letter could be used in court as long as there was enough evidence proving that Mark had murdered his wife. In 2007, it was discovered that a previous employee of Mark's named Edward Klug had an unsettling conversation with Mark during a company convention in St. Louis just three weeks before Julie died. Ordered to testify, Edward told the investigators that Mark Jensen had told him he was trying to figure out a way to kill his wife. Edward said he started talking about websites that you could go to for different poisons that would be non-detectable in a normal autopsy. This was all the evidence the Supreme Court needed to admit Julie's letter into court. Mark was taken to jail on a $1 million bond. Four years after Julie's death, Mark married his mistress, Kelly, and they had another child together, a son. When Mark ended up in prison to await trial, Kelly took over raising Mark's boys along with her own. Mark finally stood trial in 2008, 10 years after Julie's death. Not only was he being accused of poisoning his wife at this point, he was also accused of suffocating her after an unexpected witness came forward with vital evidence. This witness was Aaron Dillard, a jailhouse informant who had an extensive criminal history of fraud. He had served time with Mark Jensen in the Kenosha County Jail. According to Aaron, Mark described in detail how he attempted to kill Julie by poisoning her, but that didn't seem to be working. Mark finished her off by pushing her face into a pillow and suffocating her. Aaron said the confession came after an emotional conversation they were having when Mark was talking about his children. However, when they started talking about his wife, Mark showed zero emotion. There was no sign of sadness, loss, or regret. When Mark's attorney cross-examined Aaron, he asked if he had testified against Mark to get out of jail. Aaron said yes. Mark's attorney also asked if Aaron Dillard's plan to use Mark Jensen to get out of jail had worked. Aaron Dillard responded by saying, yes, it has. Aaron was not the only inmate that served time with Mark and testified that he admitted to killing Julie. Another man named David Thompson also came forward. Thompson claimed that Mark had tried to pay him to keep Edward Klug from testifying. The prosecutor played recordings of phone calls between Mark and his wife, Kelly, as well as with his parents. In the calls, you can hear Mark planning to pay someone $1,000, which matches David's testimony. However, the defense gave another 
explanation for these conversations. The medical examiner, Dr. Mainland, testified in court saying, on top of the ethylene glycol poisons, Julie Jensen had died from terminal asphyxia, suffocation, just as Dillard had explained. The defense brought a psychiatrist to the stand who had treated paranoid patients. The attorney asked the psychiatrist that if a person believed someone was trying to poison them, how likely would they be to accept a drink from that person? The psychiatrist responded, I have treated many paranoid patients. If Julie thought someone was trying to kill her and she knew it in advance, why the devil would she then drink it? In Julie's letter, she stated that Mark would never forgive her for the affair that she had had several years ago. The prosecutors used that part of the letter as Mark's motive for murdering his wife, along with his affair with Kelly. Mark's defense said they do not believe that Julie committed suicide, but instead had deliberately ingested antifreeze to frame her husband for murder. After ingesting the antifreeze, they believe that she meant to call 911 to be revived before it was too late, but she failed. Like Mark's parents, the defense claimed that Julie had tried to frame Mark for murder so she could claim all they had, including custody of their children as well as Mark's securities and pension. Had Julie gone through with the divorce, she would not have been able to gain custody of their children because of her mental state, which includes having hallucinations, depression, and mental disability. They further stated that she had been collecting prescription medications with the intent to appear as though she was being poisoned over time. Evidence provided by the defense were two garbage bags worth of prescription medications belonging to Julie found in the Jensen's home during the investigation after her death. They also stated Julie was suffering a severe case of depression before she died, which began in September and lasted up until the day she was found dead. During that time, she had become anorexic and had lost 15 pounds and had a lot of trouble sleeping. She was constantly ingesting Tylenol, Benadryl, and many other medications and drugs. Julie went to see her doctor, Dr. Borman, for help only days before she died. He prescribed her the antidepressant Paxil and Ambien, a sleep medication. Dr. Borman testified that Julie was in a pretty bad state when she came to his office. She was highly upset. It was burned into my mind. I'd never seen her look like that before. She was distraught, almost frantic. Dr. Borman said that he was highly concerned about Julie's family history of mental illness, specifically with that of her mother who spent her life struggling with alcohol abuse and serious depression. For unknown reasons, Mark Jensen chose not to take the stand in his own defense. The trial lasted for six weeks. Members of the jury were torn in the beginning about whether to believe that Julie was capable of killing herself or whether Mark was capable of murdering his wife. After deliberating for 32 hours, the jury finally had an answer. On February 21, 2008, the jury found Mark Jensen guilty of first-degree murder of his wife, Julie. According to the jury, Julie's letter was the primary element that led to his conviction in the end. Juror Cynthia Zulke said, Mark's the only one that had anything to gain. He tortured Julie, hoping that she would be a classic nutcase and get tucked away. Then he gets the house, he gets the kids. Mark Jensen was sentenced to life in prison. Now the judge had to decide whether or not Mark would have a chance at parole. 
Mark and Julie's sons, David and Doug, now 18 and 13, did not want to lose their father and have him spend the rest of his life behind bars for a crime they didn't believe he committed. They wrote a letter that Mark's attorneys read aloud in court. In the letter, David and Doug said they believed their father was not guilty of murdering their mother. Mark's lawyer argued that he was an excellent father to his children, and he tried to convince the judge to allow Mark the chance at parole so he could be reunited with Doug and David once again one day. The prosecuting attorney asked the judge not to give Mark a chance at parole, saying, Mark Jensen treated his wife the same way demented people torture small animals and pick the wings off of flies. Julie's brothers also urged the court to deny any chance at parole, saying that if Mark loved his children, then he would not have murdered their mother. Julie's brother, Paul, said, Killing Julie was not enough for Mark Jensen. He further chose to spit on her grave by claiming that she killed herself. He tried to erase her existence from the lives of her sons. He has continued for almost ten years to make her children believe that she left them stranded. In the end, the judge took away Mark's chance at parole, saying, Your crime is so enormous, so monstrous, so unspeakably cruel, that it overcomes all other considerations. At the end of the trial, Mark's attorneys said the judge made the wrong choice and that he hoped Mark would get a new trial. This was a huge blow for Mark and his sons and his hopes of being reunited. For Julie's family, justice had finally been served. Continuing to plead innocence, Mark Jensen fought to be heard in every possible court. In 2013, Mark finally found a judge who would overturn his life sentence. However, his bail was set at $1.5 million, so he remained in jail. Still, Mark succeeded in getting another trial, which will be held next year. Should Mark once again be found guilty for torturing and murdering his wife, Julie, and spend the rest of his life in prison, or should he be given his freedom and reunited with his sons? You can be the judge. If you found this story compelling, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and leave a five-star review if you would like to show your support. Also, don't forget to hit the notification bell in order to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking in the shadows.